Hidden Greatness is an online podcast that discusses the hidden power of a subconscious mind and looks at how talented people use it to manifest their conscious reality. The show will feature individuals who have become champions in their respective careers, looking at dark to light times in their lives and how they manage to find the strength to navigate their way to greatness. This week's episode, we are speaking to the fastest woman alive. She is a world and Olympic gold medalist for the USA, who is also part of the women's 4x1 team that broke the world record at the London 2012 Olympic Games. She rubs shoulders with the likes of NBA basketball legend Michael Jordan and former US President Barack Obama. It's the goddess of sprinting, Carmelita Jetta. Carmelita Jetta, welcome to Hidden Greatness. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? I am well. I am well. So we've caught you in the middle of a training session today with your athletes. So how did today's session go? I hope you didn't kill them too much. <laughs> I, I did, but I did. Of course I did. You know, <laughs> my, my job is to make them better, to make them greater, to make them mentally strong. So, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes your coach has to take you to that next level mentally and physically for you to make it happen. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, your career was obviously an amazing one. Um, So yeah, we've brought you on today because I know I'm a huge fan of yours. I wasn't just a competitor because I know you would be out there killing me every time (laughs) we race against each other, but your story is just incredible. So let's just take it back to where it all started for you. So how did it start? How did you become the world's fastest woman? Well, you know what? I didn't even start running track until I was 14 years old. So I wasn't that kid that ran since she was three. Um, I grew up playing basketball. So my dream was to be on the Olympic dream team, you know, but for basketball. (laughs) You know, I wanted to be Don Staley. I wanted to be Cheryl Swoops. I wanted to be Mike Magic Johnson and Michael Jordan. So those were my, the people that I idolized growing up. And so track wasn't, what I wanted to do as a freshman in high school, the basketball coach says to me, you know, why don't you go off for track so you can stay fit? And then I ended up just loving it. I loved how it was very individualized. Like you put in the work and when you put in the work, everything showed up. If you didn't put in the work, then you, you didn't show up. So, you know, I love that. Um, that's pretty much how I started my track career. I ended up at a division two college and I say that because I was I was I was good in high school, but I wasn't great. I never made state. I wasn't that athlete that was on those summer travel teams that flew across the world running. I didn't do any of that. Um, I was also an athlete that didn't take care of my business in the classroom. So when it got time for possible schools that probably wanted me, they felt that you know I wasn't um, going to be a ideal collegiate athlete in as far as education wise. So I ended up at a division two school. And I say that because, you know, we always end up places that we're actually supposed to be, you know, and, and even though division two school and some people's eyes are like, Oh, in my eye, it turned it out to be one of the most amazing things that could have ever happened to me. I was at an all women's program. I had a coach that truly cared about me. At the end of the day, that's what it's about. You can be at one of these giant, big powerhouse schools, but then when you have a coach that only thinks of you as a number, you get lost in the system. 
So I ended up having an amazing coach who cared about not only if I ran fast, but if I graduated college. I was the first person in my family to graduate from college. So that was like a huge, That's huge thing. Right? Yeah. And you have to you have to remember I was the girl that barely graduated from high school, you know? <laughs> so for, for me to graduate from college, that was great. And then after after college, you know, I wasn't at a school where agents were looking at me, where I was running super fast. That just wasn't the case. So it took me four years after I graduated from college before I made my first team. And that's just what you call sacrifice and determination. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, that's truly, truly, honestly, how it is. And what was your training program like when you were uh, at the D2 school? And for anyone who doesn't know, what is the difference between training at a D2 school compared to like a big school like Texas A&M, LSU, um, Florida State? Like, what is that? I think that the number one difference is the budget. <laughs> you know, um, that that's a big difference, the budget. You know, larger schools, their budget's a lot higher. So they're able to compete at the larger meets, the bigger meet. They're getting the massages. They're getting the, the nice clothes and the fancy shoes wow. and the, you know, private um private planes and yeah that just wasn't the case for me we were driving everywhere (laughs) eight hours and ten hours and you got one pair of spikes and you got one pair of tennis shoes and so it was definitely a grind um and then you know you didn't always get the the best of the best athletes but what we did get that a lot of schools probably don't have is we had the best chemistry Right. You know, and that's, at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. I mean, it's great to have a great number of fast girls on one team, but if they don't like each other, then that's a problem. <laughs> and it sure was. So fast forward to 2007. So that was arguably your breakout year. So how did that all plan out for you? Because that was when you first made the world champs, right? That was your first world champs team. Yes, that was actually a very funny story. So as I'm running and I'm running faster and, you know, I'm work, I'm working out at five o'clock in the morning, I'm going to work from eight to eight to six, and then I'm working at night. So I did a lot to make it, you know, I wasn't born with a, with a silver spoon in my mouth and I had bills and they were coming every 30 days. Like they come like they come <laughs> on time, <laughs> on time. Right. And, um, I started running well. And so then I said, okay, well, I'm running a little better now. Maybe I should start looking for agents. And, and I'm going to be honest when I say this, I started calling agents and they weren't responding back to me in time. They were kind of responding back when they felt like it. And that's really how I got with total sports. Um, total sports immediately called me back. And, um, you know, they said, hey, we've been watching you. We want you. And and I'll be honest, being that I am African-American and I'm an African-American woman, I did go out for the African-American agents at first. Okay, that that's just fact. That's where that's where I went. And I didn't get a lot of the responses that I wanted. And then I get total sports who's like, hey, I'm sending you the paperwork right now, you know. And so I signed with Total Sports and, you know, I'm starting to run at meets. I get to Indianapolis and um, Nike, you know, reaches out to my agent and says, you know, we want to sign her. But the contract that they were trying to give me was so beneath me. And, <laughs> I, and I was saying, and it's unfortunate that so many athletes sign contracts that are beneath them. 
because they just want to show people that they're sponsored. But you can get a regular job and make more than more that money, yeah, <laughs> if, yeah. if, if you believe in yourself. You know, that's the key. You have to believe in yourself. So I'm at 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 um, Indianapolis. I'm running in my Nike gear, but I still hadn't signed my contract because I'm thinking to myself, well, if I make this team, then they got to pay me more. Right. right. And my agent's like, well, do we want to play this game? And I say, yeah, this is the game that we're going to play. So the first round I have on night gear, but I hadn't signed. And then the second round I still have on night gear, but I hadn't signed. <laughs> and the the final before the final, my agent says, well, you know, Nike's saying that you need to sign this contract. And I told him, I said, do you believe in me? And he said, yes, I do. And I said, then I'm not going to sign it yet. We're going to make this team. And I was in lane two. Nobody was checking for me. I got out there. The gun clicked. I took third. I made my first team. So the moral to that story is if you don't believe in yourself, nobody else will. That's how I made my first championship. I made my first championship believing in me, deciding that I was worth more than someone else wanted to give me. Wow, incredible. And what was it like performing at the World Championships? Because you did come away with two medals. I did. I did. You know what? The 2007 World Championships was was just as as scary as Indianapolis because, you know, I still hadn't signed my contract yet. Wow. Oh, you went through all of that and still hadn't signed a contract? Okay. I still hadn't signed it yet because I knew I was going to medal. Look at that. <laughs> and the, the killer part was going into... The final, I called my dad. They were in Los Angeles, so it was really early in the morning. And I said, well, dad, I, I, if I don't sign this contract now, if I don't make this podium, everything's going to go away. And he says, well, why are you calling me? You already know what you want to do. And he hangs the phone up in my face. <laughs> and, you know, my agent says, you know, if you, if this doesn't go the way you want it, it's going to backfire. And I said, well, I'm about, I'm going to make this team. So the gun clicks. I made the, I took third. It took them what, 20 minutes to decide who won. Nobody told me how to lean. Nobody taught me how to lean. <laughs> my, my lower body was over the line, but my upper body was tilted. Right. So I could have, I could have won my first championship on a betting on myself. Now, as far as the four by one, if you notice, they didn't put me in the final. And that was the moment that changed my mindset about USA track and field. Um, I received a medal. I ran the first round and then they said that I wasn't seasoned enough. Seasoned? So they did, yeah. They, they said I wasn't, I wasn't a veteran and, right. and they were, they were afraid to put me in the final yet. They put me on the first leg in the prelim, which, yeah. which, which, which made no sense. No sense Because whatsoever. if you didn't believe in me, yeah. why would you put me on first? Exactly. Because if I jump, then nobody runs. Of course. Right? Yeah. So going into that final when they told me I wasn't going to run, and now me and A.B. Dean are, are very cool, but I said to her, and I'm sure she never forgot this, I said when she did not put me on the four-by-one team, Trust and believe you're going to need me every time USA step on the track. And she looked at me like, did she just say that to me? I said, I sure damn did. <laughs> and after that, 
After 2009, I was on every relay team, broke every record from pin relays to world championships to Olympic Games. And I'll never forget telling Amy Dean, USA Track and Field will forever need me. And they sure, sure did. They sure did. <laughs> and I, it, it being your first world championships, you were also... 28 years old so you know when mm-hmm. you know in the uk for example when we make our first team we're usually like late teens like 19 19 to 21 it depending on how you develop but i guess in track and field in the u.s like most people are seasoned by the time it comes to your age whereas you made your first team at 28 and you won your first individual medal as a sprinter it's very much unheard of looking at the catalogue of athletes who come before you as well yes i mean that is true a lot of athletes are much younger when they run i guess the plus to me we could say is throughout college i was injured a lot okay so so i i didn't have so many races on my legs if that makes sense yeah so even though i was older in age i was younger than a lot of runners physically Okay. Because a lot of runners have run since they were five and six and seven and ran club and ran all of these meets in their collegiate career to where when they're 24, 25, half of them are burnt out. Yeah, that's very true. Half of them are extremely exhausted. And because I didn't have so much work on my body or my mind, I was able to achieve a lot of things at an older age. Right. Okay. So looking forward to, you know, 2008, you didn't obviously make that team for the Olympics, but then you did make the decision going into 2009 that you were going to be there at the World Champs and you did make the switch working with John Smith. So how did that all go about? How was that from the start? You know, failing is a is a powerful thing. <laughs> you know, a lot of people don't understand that sometimes you have to fail in order to really understand what people are telling you. You know, uh, many times as athletes, we think we know everything. Yeah. And some some lessons are learned the hard way. And my, the biggest lesson that I learned was when I did not make the 2008 team, I had to really sit back and reevaluate Carmelita. Many times athletes don't want to do that. They want to blame everybody else but themselves. So they want to blame the coach. Yep. Exactly. And they don't want to hold themselves accountable. And going into 2009, I held myself accountable. I knew the things that I had to change. One of them was I had to change my coach. I had to change my mindset. I had to change my friends. I had to change my energy. Um, I had to change how I ate. And so that was the year I decided that I would never be left behind. I very much remember that. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story. So 2009, um, we go on warm weather. This particular year, we went warm weather training. And, you know, I was with Lloyd Cowan at the time. And we would always compete at the Mount Sac Relays. Mm -hmm. And it was a beautiful hot day. And I was nervous. Um, I actually didn't race that year. But I went to watch um, because, you know, American track and field. I love watching you guys compete. It just gets me amped. And I remember seeing Carmelita Jetta. Carmelita opens up in 10-9 in Easter. It was down near April. And I was thinking, what? What is going on? So from then, I was like, okay. Everyone had obviously been aware that you'd made this change, you know, working with John Smith. Um, I believe he also remodeled your mechanics as well with training as well. And that definitely proved that to be the case. You opening up in a world lead on your opener. 
So, you know, 2009 was definitely sure to be a competitive season for you. And then you did go on that season to win a whole bunch of races. You won London, uh, Monaco, and then going into the World Champs, what was that like? Where was your head at at that time? I was cocky. My head, <laughs> my head, my head was very big. My head was huge. I was cocky. I was arrogant. I was smelling my own, you know what? Yep. Um, I was I was running extremely fast and nobody could stop me. And going into Berlin, the one thing that John Smith said to me, and I'll never forget this, he said, these women have been here before. And he was talking about Shelly Ann. He was talking about Karan Stewart. And, you know, what what he was saying was, don't think that they're not going to step up in this final because they've been here before. And I, I threw away everything that I had been doing all year. I threw away my mechanics. I threw away my technique. I threw away my patience. And I went out there and I raced. And that's how I got third. I should not have gotten third. I should have won 2009 World Championships. But I learned an extremely big lesson in front of everyone. And that was you never underestimate anybody. And you sure don't. So just touching on that slightly, what was that rivalry like with you and Shelly Ann? Because you guys had some battles over the years when you guys were competing. You know what? You know, people like to call it a rivalry. Rivalries are usually when you can't stand the next person. So... I'm not going to say that me and Shelly Ann had a rivalry. We had a competitive, uh, uh, com- we were we were competitive with each other. Right. You know, I, I didn't hate this woman. And, and so many times the media likes to pin women of color against each other and, yep. and to make it seem like that there could only be one great um, woman out there. And we were both great. We were both savages. Me, her, Veronica, Karan, we were all lovely, dark-skinned women yep. that lined up with with a presence. And um, the rivalry, I guess you would say, was more so of, of enjoying each other's competitiveness. Mm-hmm. Knowing that when I lined up with these women, I had to bring it. I couldn't play. I couldn't um, let anybody... Um, did think that I wasn't ready that day. That's what I loved about racing them. I had to bring my A game. Every single time. You really, really Every did. single time. And that's something that the guys didn't do. And we're going we gonna to talk facts. The guys would run away from each other. They didn't race each other all the time. Or they would set races up and say, well, this person can't be in the race. So, you know, or this person can't yep. be in the race. And women, we did not do that. I wanted them all on the line. <laughs> every single one, every single every time. Every single one of them. Just like they wanted me in the race, I wanted them in the race as well. We didn't run from each other. We we kept track and field hot for several years. You did? You did? Because there was no... And there was always consistency with you guys as well because because you guys would race each other at the big meets, at the Diamond Leagues, at the Golden Leagues as well prior. You know, there was no running away from each other. So then coming to World Champs, it was always going to be the same people there or thereabouts, maybe one or two new people who'd made the final, but you knew what you were working with going into every single final. Exactly. And I guess that was the difference. So two weeks later, a few weeks later, after, mm-hmm. you know, the slight disappointment of finishing third at the World Championships, 
You then mm-hmm. continued to set the entire world alight. <laughs> so where did the switch come? What happened between Berlin missing out on third and the next couple of weeks going into actually running that, you know, fabulous 1064 race? I was pissed off. <laughs> In a word. <laughs> I was, I first off after the Berlin race, I cried in my coach's arms like a baby. That's okay. I, That's all right. I cried, I cried, I cried, I cried. And then after I stopped crying, I apologized to him. You know, that was a year that also John Smith was showing the world that he was still a great coach. You know, so many athletes had left him. So many athletes had talked so bad about him. And I grew a love for this man. So I wanted to give him a medal to shut everybody up. Right. And when I didn't do that, I was more upset with myself that I let him down. Uh, Not that I didn't win, but that I didn't win for him. So I told him going into Thessaloniki, I said, I'm sorry, and I'm going to make it up. And you sure did. (laughs) And I did. And I did. And I was mad as you know what. Yep. And when that gun clicked, I showed it. And I didn't even know I ran 10-6. I was just like bopping up and down, knowing that I did what I was finally supposed to do. And when they said 10-6, I was like, oh, my gosh, I just ran 10-67. So then I was really on cloud 335. <laughs> now... After the race, you know, the one thing that upsets me more than anything with our sport is when guys run fast and break the world record, it's it's put up on pedestals. It's oh, my gosh, it's everywhere. It's on ESPN. It's on the paper. It's on track and field news. But when I ran 10-6, it was more of a, well, how did she do that? Was she was she clean when she did that? Um, What? You know, she's so old and she ran that fast. If I didn't get the respect that I was supposed to get. So going into Shanghai with the talk of, oh, I bet you she can't do it again. When you see me cross the finish line and point at the screen, that was for all those haters. <laughs> Every single one of them. <laughs> Every single one of them. Bet. 10 6 4. Oh, I did that again. And when I went to Daegu two weeks later, I ran 10.8 into a negative, like, 3.1. I mean, yeah, I ran 10.8 to a negative, like, 3.1. And I was like, oh, yeah, I would have dropped the hot one again. Like, I was more upset that I wasn't getting the same love as the males would get every time that they run fast. And how did that make you feel? Because, you know, track and field is huge in our sport, but it's definitely fair to say with the Blue Ribbon event being the 100 metres, they are always, as in, I say they, I say they are, they, the press basically are always focused on the sprint. So it's always the men's 100 metres always. And like you said, these guys don't even line up against each other throughout the season consistently. They literally make the final and then it's like, okay. But whereas you guys were consistent all season, you knew who you were up against. And then even post-world champs, you were still racing against these women. I remember the season back then it was going to september so you're running 10 6 in september you remember you started the season in april 10 9 mm-hmm. dropped to 10 6 september and you still didn't get the credit so what was that like what did that feel like i mean i got credit for it let me let me not disrespect the 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 press that actually gave me the credit that i deserve because some some press definitely did give me the credit i deserve um, but I definitely feel like 
me being the second fastest woman alive in such a premier event that it was not published the way it should have been. You know, it was not yeah. put out there the way it should have been. Um, that's the unfortunate part in the sport. The, the second unfortunate part in this sport right now is, like you said, we had meets up until September. We, we, we had avenues to, to compete, to get our sharpness, to relax, to run in places that had, you know, small towns that treated you like queens. And they don't have that in the sport anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that is true. And, and, and it's unfortunate to me. It just looks like the sport is declining. It's not climbing. Everybody thought that this diamond league was going to be a game the changer. Best. <laughs> was going to be a game changer, but all it did was close out a lot of those small meets. So you went from being able to run 20 and 30, 100 meters to now what you're running eight to 10 a year. Yeah. You know, so for the athlete, that's not the Carmelita Jetter. Your career is pretty much done after USA. It's so shocking when you think you're, 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 you're not getting the opportunity to run those small meets that the big runners aren't going to, yeah. you know, so it's, it's starting to trickle our sport down because now these athletes have to go and get jobs because they can't afford, afford yeah. to be a track athlete anymore. Literally. There's no hot, there's less and less money in the sport. you know, even going back to those times, 07, 09, even before then, I mean, I've been around for a heck of a long time and you could do those small meets before you get to the big ones, before you got to the Golden League. Like my first Golden League was, um, oh, what's the last one? Brussels, Brussels. And mm -hmm. I was up against mm -hmm. Christina Ron, uh, Pintasevich Block. I mean, I'm talking a long, long time ago. This is like 05, 06. Mm -hmm. And I was only running like 11-4 at the time and I got a lane. But, you know, those meets before, if the meets beforehand, like running the small meets in Belgium, France, Holland, that allowed me to get to run yep. fast. Hingolo, yes, hang all, all of those, of those meets, meets yes. world challenges. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's exactly mm -hmm. what it is. But we are slightly going on a tangent right now. <laughs> so when you did coin the title, the fastest woman alive and running that fast time, how did your life change in that moment? Um, it, it definitely changed with, you know, showing the world that things could actually be done. You know, people felt like with Marion Jones running 10-6 and her being disgraced that nobody else could run 10-6 again. And um, I was the, the number one person tested in USADA from 2009 through 2012. And that's facts. People can actually look that number up. <laughs> um, yeah. I was the highest tested athlete and I love that you know a lot of people were upset when they got tested but I loved it I invited them please come keep testing me so so you know my number will always stand nobody can ever come and take it from me that, and that is true that is exactly what it's about really just not just being consistent on the track but also making people aware that you are being consistently tested um because you know we do have a problem in doping in the sport and but there are athletes out there who are performing who are running fast times and who are clean it's not everyone you can't tarnish everyone with the same brush but right that's a mm -hmm. that's a conversation for another day <laughs> yes that's a, that's a conversation that's a for another, day. another day so let's look at 2011 because 2011 something another spectacular thing happened which was the world champs and you became world champion Yes, that was a year I was not losing. 
You <laughs> and, 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 and and that's just that's just facts. Like I was not losing. I had two bronze medals. I was becoming the bridesmaid at all the weddings, you know. <laughs> um, I was the bridesmaid and never the bride. I'll never forget in 2009, the commentator said that, and that stuck with me. It, it truly stuck with me for two years. When people, people don't know that certain things stick with people, good or bad. And that saying that that commentator said stuck with me. And I refused to be another bridesmaid in 2011. I trained like a monster. Even when I would throw up, I would wipe my mouth off and get up and do it again. Um, <laughs> that's that's how I was training in 2011. Like, you had to take that from me that year. Um, I was just in my zone. I was in my tunnel. I was so, so, I needed that for myself. You know, we always need something for ourselves. And I'll be honest with you, if I didn't win in 2011, I probably would have stopped running. That would have been my my breaker point. Um, everybody has a breaker point where you yeah. just feel like you keep going and it's not panning out for you and you just get frustrated. And 2011 would have been my breaker if I didn't win. But I was going into that race and it wasn't cocky. It wasn't arrogance. It was belief belief and you definitely did so what was it that helped you manifest such a winning mindset a losing mindset having that loss in 09 you mean yeah yeah having that loss having that loss when I knew I wasn't supposed to get it that hurt um and, and you know like I said sometimes you have to be completely hurt and drop to your knees before you can acknowledge the things that you need to do different and and that's what happened wow 2011 you became world champion and then 2012 you made your first olympic team honestly at this point you must have felt like a veteran because you've you've done a lot in such a short space of time and everything that you achieved up until that point you were also you know it wasn't something where you were in your early to mid 20s at this point you were going into your 30s so 2012 take us back to that in london the, the, the thing about 2012 is i wasn't going to even compete really how come um i i lost my aunt to breast cancer in march i was completely devastated i wasn't going to practice john smith had to literally come to my house and just sit on the couch with me and watch tv because i was just broken um, I couldn't really do Nike events because I just kept crying. I was like in a silent depression. Um, I lost someone that I truly cared about. And I always tell people, you know, Nike and everybody, when you're doing great things, they cut you checks, but nobody tells you how to deal with being broken. Yeah. Grief and um, loss is, so is heartbreaking. It's a, a whole nother yeah. ball game. So I wasn't going to compete. And then, I kind of sucked myself out of it and said, what would my aunt think right now of me? How would she feel about me not doing what I needed to do? But a lot of it came from my coach. You know, when people see John Smith, they think legendary coach. They think the man that just makes people fast. But I will forever love John Smith because he loved me so much in that moment. Um, he was very gentle with me because I was so broken. And um, going into USA's, I pulled it together. I made the team in the one and the two. 
And then going into 2020 London Games, at that point, I had finally came into the reality that I was at the Olympics and I knew I needed to get those medals for my aunt. And you really, really did. And what was it specifically, or it can be, you know, a collective of things that actually pulled you out of those dark times? You know, it was truly just my aunt. It was truly just my aunt. That's what that's what pushed me through 2012. I can't even say it was anything else. Um, it was my aunt. It was wanting to get the medals for her. And I did exactly what I set out to do. And you definitely did. And I remember being in the stadium on a nice, warm, hot Saturday evening in London because we, we didn't have a team at that point, so no one cares. But, you know, the women's four by one did set the world alight because you guys broke a world record. So what was that like, especially in the four by one? You know, it had been one of the longest standing records in track and field. So what was that like, you know, running with Tiana and Alison and Bianca? Because you guys, you know, performed amazingly that day. You know what? I, I tell the story about me and Bianca because we didn't actually get along. <laughs> I didn't really, I didn't really care for Bianca. That's facts. You know, everybody kind of knew that we were just kind of like there. Um, the USA staff wanted to put someone else on third leg because they felt like that person was better than Bianca. Now, one thing about me is I'm a big girl, and if I know that. The objective is to win. I want the best person on the third leg, not the fastest person. People get so caught up in fast people, but Team USA had never broken this record, and they had four of the fastest women all the Mm -hmm. time on the relay. But we needed to get four women that had chemistry. Now, Tiana's Tiana's, um, leg was set. Nobody was touching Allison's leg, but Bianca, even though she wasn't the fastest, Bianca had that dog in her. She was going to bring you the stick regardless if she was running 12-5 in the open hundred. Mm-hmm. She was going to bring you the stick. And that's why we chose Bianca um, on that relay was because she had something that she can't coach. I tell people all the time, you can get a super fast person, but if they ain't got no heart or, or no confidence in themselves, we won't win nothing. Um, so we was going to get in a lot of trouble if Bianca didn't run well because I picked to be on that third leg so I was nervous as I don't know what (laughs) making sure that Bianca gave me that stick now people always ask me what was I thinking when I pointed to the clock the funny thing was that was me telling all of those people that Bianca Knight shouldn't have been on third leg where to go and how to get there gosh and you you know you guys I don't know why people always assume like you were saying like it's the four fastest people on the team because I've definitely had that with the women's four by one being on the team for a number of years but you know like you say no one really talks about the chemistry of the team it's not just about their going out and performing and having the fastest people but you do genuinely need chemistry and you know I know you've mentioned before you said and you can correct me if I'm wrong you knew from when Tiana <laughs> Once the gun had gone and Tiana was gone, you already knew you guys had won the race. When Tiana, when that gun clicked and I saw Tiana's first two steps, I said, oh, we won. <laughs> two steps, gone. We're going to get this gold. Let's wrap it up. That's when I said, oh, we're about to break the world record. It was like I was floating on top of the ground. 
40.82 man it's incredible it really really is and i know you mentioned about the chemistry of the team but what was it particularly about bianca that separate that separated her from all the other alternates that you did have on the team because she was a fantastic athlete as well because she was doing pretty well individually but again she wasn't the quickest so what separated her from everybody else i think the one thing that separated bianca from other people was Bianca knew that she was one of the baddest curve runners. Okay, yeah. And it was the it was the belief that she knew that she was going to outrun BCB. <laughs> and that was it. That was where it needed to bro- to be broken, right? And and that and that's where it needed to be because we all know Veronica Campbell Brown is a savage really on the curve. Play. If you don't if you don't think B- Veronica Campbell Brown is a savage on the curve, then you have not been paying any attention to track and field. <laughs> and so, and and when Bianca said, "Don't worry, I got her," I said, "Boom!" <laughs> That's what you need. You need somebody. You need somebody that know. Yes, this woman is amazing, but today I'm gonna shut her down. Oof. And Bianca definitely did do that and help you guys. Win the goal. And Bianca definitely did that. And, and truly, our relay team just made all of us closer. I even talked to Bianca now through Twitter, ask her how she's doing, ask her how her baby doing. You know, so sometimes you just need to go through experiences with people and then you end up loving them in a totally yeah, different life. That's what it's about because ultimately, from off the back of you guys winning that Olympic gold, running the world record, you created a sisterhood, which is something that's not really spoke about in the sport because we are, you know, I know you don't really like this word, but we are seen as rivals in the sport, you know, whereas we don't really have, as as much as we have respect for each other, there's not really a sisterhood created because we are so competitive. Right, right. That is true. That is true. So we definitely have a sisterhood. I will forever root for all of these women because we were in the trenches together. It's kind of like, people that go to war with each other you know those soldiers will forever love the person that stood next to them because they knew that that they were there to protect them and it's pretty much the same thing with my relay team i was in the trenches with these women so it's a it's it's a special it's a special relationship something that can't ever be replaced yeah, and it really really is so off the back of the 2012 success, you know, you're going back to USA, you're meeting all these amazing people. You guys met um, Barack Obama, right? You went to the White House. Come on. Yes, we met Obama. <laughs> Which must have been amazing. They named a cheetah after me at the Smithsonian. Okay. Okay. <laughs> what was family life like post-Olympics? What was that success all about? How was it? Everything was amazing, you know. The, the biggest thing that I love more than anything, yeah, I was on the Ellen show. I was on all these great shows, but I'm a family person. So when I came home, all of my family was at my house with oh. food <laughs> and pictures. And that's, that's the part I love. Like all that other stuff is great. You know, it's for pictures, but um, it's about those people that were supporting you before everybody else knew you. And. Um- that was it. Do you know what, right, Carmelita? I've just remembered something post-20, well, at the back of 2012. So I don't know if you remember this, but I'm going to tell you this story anyway. Mm-hmm. So post-Olympics, you guys, everyone was still racing. I remember seeing you in Zagreb and I was running the one and two. And then a few days later, um, there was a whole group of athletes. You know, we travel on the road and you were going straight to the... Uh, the Diamond League final, which was in Brussels. Mm-hmm. And I went straight to Newcastle. 
And you, I, I I remember speaking to John Smith, your coach, and then he was like, yeah, after Zagreb, we're going to do um, Brussels and then we're going to go Newcastle. And I was like, Newcastle? That's like less than 24 hours between the race. He was like, don't worry, she'll be there. <laughs> and I was like, nah, 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 it's cool, it's cool, John. You play and you play and it's cool, whatever. And then I remember the night before Newcastle, we were watching um, the Brussels Diamond League and you ran the 100-meter final. Obviously, you won. And... Um, and I was like, this girl's tired. She ain't coming to Newcastle. Coming to Newcastle for what? And then, you know, there's a flight, early flight the next day. Everyone who was competing at Newcastle then got their four o'clock flight to Newcastle. And then you, I was like, she's this, I was still thinking in my head, she ain't going to turn up. It's cool, Annika, you got this. It's cool, it's cool. I get on the start line, there's Carmelita. I was like, oh, heck, what is this? I was like, oh, she doesn't get tired. But you didn't run. I remember I was running the 100 and the 150, you know, because Newcastle outdoor street race, last meet of the season, you're thinking everyone's tired. And you just competed in the um, the 100. You just did the 100, that meet. And uh-huh. you were gone. <laughs> you won 10-9 on a flat in a street. And I'm like, you really do not get tired. I was just like, wow, gosh. No, it's I just, got it tired. was just incredible. No, I got tired. Please don't ever think that I wasn't tired. But at the same Kamalia, time, you never looked tired I ever. Never looked you just tired. kind of accelerated and just was just gone. <laughs> yeah, I was tired though. It would be days that people didn't see where I would sleep almost 24 hours and John would have to have the security come and keep opening my door so he could check on me like it was days oh, wow. where <laughs> I would sleep like eight ten hours and then wake up eat and sleep eight and ten hours like it, I might not have looked tired but I was exhausted but one thing I I I, I learned from, from John and he used to always tell me this is your window in the sport is small so so when your time comes, you have to take advantage of everything that comes your way because every year for a track athlete is different. You can get hurt. Mm-hmm. You can you cannot be able to compete. So when you have a hot year, there's no such thing as, oh, I'm just going to wait till next year. No, you roll that year out. And everything that's on the table, you better go and get it because there's no guarantee that the next year you'll be in that same position. And I definitely think there's a massive misconception with that as well. You know, you become world champion, Olympic champion. You've had a successful season. You finished the season world number one, unbeaten. And then, you know, the following year, obviously anything can happen. And, you know, it's definitely fair to say 2013 was, you know, a bit of a, downward you know mixed year for you so what mm-hmm. was that like because I know you were nursing an injury with your quad as well well I tore my quad in May I tore my quad in May and um I didn't have to do U.S. trials because I was a world champion so that yeah. was that was a good thing um you know we tried to stay on top of it I kept seeing Dr. Mueller um to try to get the quad stronger but the quad was torn Okay. I mean, that that was a fact. The quad was torn. And 2013, I definitely could have just not went to world championships and could have just got my surgery earlier. And, you know, it's all those questions of if I wouldn't have ran, would I have been able to really stay in the sport a little longer? You know, it's always those shoulda, coulda, wouldas. But 
when you're a true champion, you can never go off the shoulda, coulda, wouldas. You're always going to want to line up and, and do it because that's what you want to do. So in Moscow, I had a completely torn quad and I ended up still getting third at and making the podium. And, and that was my best medal ever. Like people think my gold medals were the best for me. No, my bronze medal in Moscow 2013 meant the most because that was the, the medal that I had to really gut it out. And why was it your favorite? Like, you know, 2013 was that one, but what, what was it that took you to that moment where you were like, yes, this is where I need to be. I'm going there to perform. Well, it was, it was my title. I, I, I wasn't going to just give it to Shellyanne. She was going to have to take it. She's going to have to work. <laughs> she was going to have to work for it. She was going to have to earn it. And the fact that I still made the final and got on the podium, that spoke volumes of, of my strength. It really did. So your mindset was just in a different, different place at that point because you're probably thinking, okay, my left quad is torn. How on earth am I going to compete this season? You make it through to the season, make it to world champs, and you go and medal. Oh, I'm a savage. <laughs> you were 34 at this point as well. So what was life like for Carmelita? You know, were you thinking about other things? You thinking, oh, I'm going to go on. Was retirement in the plan? Do you want to have kids? You know, where was your mind at this point? Well, retirement wasn't in the plan. I, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to go get surgery. And then I'll rehab and I'll get back on the track. But I had the surgery and I gained like 25 pounds. So I got a little chunky, a little fat. Um, and then I came back out and tried to keep running. And then I kept re-tearing my quad. So I didn't rest like I should have. I didn't sit down like I should have. And when I didn't, when I tore my quad a week before, Olympic trials for 2016, that's when I decided, okay, done, it's a wrap. Um, Matt, Michael Jordan told me one day when we were at the U.S. Open, he said, you're going to decide. Sorry, excuse me? Who? I know. Michael Jordan? Michael Jordan. Carmelita. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I have to say Carmelita, so. you're saying that like it's your neighbor, your postman, the man who owns a shop down the road. You just drop Michael Jordan. Yeah. Oh, don't worry. That's just my bestie, Michael Jordan. Okay. All right, continue, sorry. So you would Michael Jordan at the US Open. And, and he said, says, when, when people start beating you that never should beat you, you're going to say to yourself, it's time for me to go. And I didn't understand what he meant. He said, you're going to know when it's time to retire. And I was like, hmm, he don't know what he's talking about. But as I was compete as I was competing in 2016, I really started to understand what he was saying. I didn't love it anymore. I didn't I didn't love waking up to train. I didn't love throwing up. I didn't love falling out. Um, when somebody beat me that I know should not have beaten me, I didn't love that feeling. So I knew exactly what he meant when he said, "You're going to know when it's time to retire." The, the number one thing that I missed, and I cried on NBC when I did an interview with them about retiring, it wasn't about not going to track meets. It wasn't about competing anymore. I was going to miss John Smith. Wow. And and like you were saying, he was like a father to you. So, you know, how, how was that relationship with him and how did he take it, you know, once you had made the decision to retire? We, we both cried. John... I, I have an amazing father. So John wasn't my father figure, 
John was my best friend. Okay. And and our our ages are, you know, so, you know, you know, John is so much older than me, but I talked to John on the phone every day. <laughs> John was truly my best friend. Um, I was gonna miss him for that reason. I knew that once track was over, I wasn't gonna see him every day. We weren't gonna talk like we did every day. Um, we, whenever we flew out of town, we sat right next to each other. Even when I hated him, when, <laughs> when I would lose a race because he worked me too hard the week before and I'd be mad at him. He still makes sure his seat was next to mine. It was crazy. I used to be like, I'm so mad at him right now. But, um, that's, that's what I missed most. That's what hurt me more about retiring, knowing that I didn't see John every day. But now that I'm coaching at Missouri State University, I talk to John about three days a week. So it's like, it's back to normal a little bit. I, I love that feeling of, of talking to him every day and, and talking to him about how happy I am with my athletes. So I always consider myself the female JS. As you should as well, you know, John Smith, one of definitely one of the world's best track and field coaches. And, you know, he then went on to deliver the fastest woman alive. So what was yes. that transition like with coaching? Because also as well, when um, I remember this back in 2018, World Indoors, I was competing as part of the 4x4 um, with the British girls. And we were at the track a day before the meet. Who do I see? Carmelita Jetta. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> this girl's making a comeback. Okay, okay. Nah, she's coaching. And she's coaching Muriel Ahore as well. So how did that come about? Because she then went on to win gold. You know, you were part of that as well. So how did that come about? Because she was also your rival at the time. She, sorry, not rival. But she was also a comp- former competitor of yours. So what was that like? Because, you know, in our sport, that's something that's very, very unheard of. How often do you hear a former male coach going to, you know, someone who was their competitor, whereas you don't really hear it on the women's side? So what was that like? And then producing the gold medal as well in Birmingham? Well, that year, Mariel was going through some things with her coach, and she needed um, help going into the World Championships. Um, she needed, this was for outdoor, the, the outdoor championships. She needed help going into there, and she called me. Um, we actually had the same agent, so the agent, my agent called me first and said, hey, just a heads up, Mariel's going to give you a call. And I'm thinking to myself, what? <laughs> for and, what? What does she want? Um, you know, I, I spoke to her on the phone. We had a really good conversation. And I told her, I said, well, I'm going to help you put it back together. And then when we go into indoors, I'm going to help you win. And, you know, I said, the, the number one plus that I have is because I know how to defeat you. So that means I know how to help you work on the negatives that you have. Um, one thing about me, I'm, I'm a cheerleader for anybody that wants to do amazing and great things. I am going to motivate you and cheerlead you and make you think so highly of yourself, more highly than you probably ever thought of yourself before. Um, and regardless of me competing against her, my job was to help her win. And so I used every negative that I knew of her and turned them into her positives. And you sure did that. Like you said, you it's nice to hear that you did have such a huge respect for her. But 
as well. You had that advantage because you'd spent up until that point most of your career beating her. So now you needed to help her beat everyone else, you know, mm-hmm. and you did come away with the gold. And just going back to coaching, post that moment, 2018 onwards, like you did say, you are now at Missouri State. So what's that like? You know, you've spent years living in LA, in California, <laughs> being with family, friends, you know, that lifestyle. What's Missouri like? Because now it's on on the different side as well. And, you know, like you said, it's not your usual LSU Texas it's not a big 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 you know track and field school and you went mm-hmm. through a similar situation like that as well so what what is that like what's the transition period been like um the transition I really enjoyed it like moving from LA to Springfield I'll be honest with you that was probably the 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 difficult part going from a big city to very small city that um that is not as diverse as Los Angeles okay. you know so and being that I'm a real family person, that was also one thing of not having the the family um, aspect here. Um, but I knew for me to really become the amazing coach, the future Hall of Fame coach that I that I'm shooting for, I had to be somewhere where I could be isolated for a second. I had to be somewhere where I could really get my craft together. You know, we always think, okay, big schools, big schools, that's amazing to be at a big school. But I needed to be somewhere where I could actually coach. Right. So you start from the bottom up. up. And, you know, sometimes when you go to those schools that are bigger, you're not really coaching. Um, Sometimes the head coach might be a sprint coach as well. And, you know, you're pretty much, you know, just following them around and dropping cones, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and that's, that's what I, I didn't want. I definitely wanted to come somewhere where I can really perfect my craft. I could really make athletes amazing. People could really see the change that I'm doing. Um, the people could really see the change that I'm doing in the program. And, you know, we just, this is my second year here i'm also graduating with my master's in may so i knew i couldn't have done yeah i knew i couldn't have done that in la trust and believe that (laughs) wouldn't have happened um and so you know having getting my master's and being able to coach the girls that were kind of like me growing up you know i'm i'm having the opportunity to coach baby carmelitas and i say that because these are girls that didn't go to the powerhouse high schools that didn't travel the world on travel teams and i'm getting them to do things that they never ever thought in their life that they could do um this past indoor season i had the freshman of the year Um, We took third overall. This was the highest finish that Missouri State has taken since 2012. So my my work here is being done. So that's that's why I'm here, you know, um, to to change the culture. Yeah. And you're also not just being inspiration to these younger athletes, but you're also giving them hope as well. Like you said, you don't necessarily have to be at a big school there's no point you being a big name at a big school and not necessarily making an impact whereas these girls are someone who you can aspire to you know and just looking at your career just looking back was there anything in particular that you regret during your career and also what would you say to your younger self the number one thing I regret during my career was I didn't celebrate me enough 
Um, I would win and just kind of go to the next meet. Next meet. I would win <laughs> and just kind of go and, and go to the next meet. I didn't stop and celebrate me enough. That was one of my biggest regrets. I would definitely say that I did not celebrate me enough. What would you say? Was there anything in particular that you didn't feel? Was there a particular year that you didn't feel that that wasn't celebrated? So be it the year you broke the world record, world champs, Olympics. Every year, every year, (laughs) every year, every year, every year that I competed, it was just kind of like I was such a goal setter that if I hit a goal, I just went to the next goal. So every, every year I didn't celebrate myself like I should have. So I would definitely say the negative of my career was I didn't celebrate me enough. The one thing that I would like to probably say to athletes um, with just um, some motivation and some advice is your team needs to believe in you more than you believe in yourself, whoever that may be, if it's your coach, if it's your agent, um, whoever's around you majority of the time, they need to be true cheerleaders. If you're questioning the people around you, <laughs> that you're is in it. the wrong circle. That is it. I was literally going to say, what would you say to the next generation? But Carmelia is already ahead of the game. Definitely. And what are your hopes for Missouri State this season, now that you are coaching? Well, right now, first, my hope is for all my girls to graduate. That is the number one plan. I'm not that coach that's going to put you in one unit classes just so you can stay eligible. Um, I'm that, I'm that coach that you got to get out of here in four years. Um, out of the 45 girls on our team, 38 girls were on the honor roll. Wow. Look at that. Inspiration one by one. Exactly. Listen, you got to get it done in the classroom. So my, my number one goals for this track and field team is to stay focused in the classroom, stay on the honor roll, stay the course to graduate and everything else falls into place. When your athletes are happy, they run good. When your athletes feel good, they run good. When your athletes are respected, they run good. When your athletes feel feel like they're loved, genuinely loved, guess what? They run good. Um, I'm a believer of positive energy. I'm a b- believer of you should you should leave me feeling way better than you came to me. So my objective is practice should be the best part of your day, not the worst part of your day. Um, I'm a believer that my athletes should never fear me, but respect me. If they're fearing me, then I'm not doing my job as a coach. Um, I, my number one objective is to hear the announcer at the NCAA final say Missouri State Lane 3. Incredible story. Kamalita, I'm over here just reminiscing about everything that you've done, everything that you've achieved, honestly. Thank you so much for continuing to be an inspiration to the next generation because ultimately that's what it's about. But also remembering everything that you achieved as, you know, the world's fastest woman alive, as, you know, the world record holder, as part of the 4 by one and just an incredible all-round athlete as well. So thank you so much today for taking the time out to speak on Hidden Greatness podcast. And we hope to hear from you soon. And good luck at Missouri State. Thank you. Bye, you guys. Thank you, Carmelita. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and like. Tell a friend to tell a friend about Hidden Greatness, which is available on all streaming platforms. Catch you on the next episode. Bye.